If you remember from a couple of months ago now when we began the series in Romans, we, we took just a few minutes in that very first sermon to uh, note some things about the culture in Rome. And there were two centers of power, if you, were, if you would. One was a political center of power. That was the empire of Rome itself. And the other that Paul is aware of and, and emerges, particularly in those three chapters, would be the religious center of power. Now that was primarily, at least what was in Paul's purview, that was primarily the Jewish culture and tradition. And those two powers weren't necessarily in competition one with another, but they were central in the hearts and minds of many people. And I shared with you some things that might seem a a little uh, intriguing, if not curious, uh, from a, a, a historian Everett Ferguson, who wrote, and I'll just share a little bit of that again, Roman power was due to Roman piety. I remember reading that and thinking to myself, what? I don't think of the Roman Empire as as a deeply religious empire, but it was. Ferguson goes on to describe how Rome successfully absorbed all kinds of other populations. Alien populations is the particular term that he used. And they, much like America, the great melting pot, as we sometimes refer to ourselves, Rome borrowed things from other cultures, making them their own. And then Ferguson writes, there was a prominent feeling that what Rome did was rooted in the eternal order of right. A very narrow expression of that would be that we are right. And we have the right to be what we want as a nation, an empire. We have a right to go where we want, conquer whom we will, you know, take whatever resources. And, and so in many ways, Rome was its own religion. Now, it was a religion of politics, not just the emperor, but remember they also had a senate and other facets of, of government that are not far from where we are at this particular moment. And I was thinking again this week as I was looking at Romans 5, which we'll come to in just a moment, that the American society remains, in many ways, its own religion. Through our politics, through our educational pursuits, through social policies, even our economics, we seek to establish our own right. Righteousness, to to be even more specific, if you will. We are really intent on establishing our own righteousness. There's a, there's a newer term in recent years that uh, I think even captures some of this and expresses a little bit of this. And to define this effort to uh, establish our own righteousness, you've heard the term virtue signaling. Virtue signaling, if you just Google it and look for a definition, this is, this is the first thing that will pop up. The action or practice of publicly expressing opinions or sentiments intended to demonstrate one's good character or the moral correctness of one's position on a particular issue. And I thought this, uh, this image captures so much of that. The great Google goes on to say, it's noticeable how often virtue signaling consists of saying you hate things. An example of virtue signaling could be a long Facebook post or Twitter thread that self-righteously lectures people on the awfulness of some social phenomenon or makes a show of praising a cause that you support. And so often it comes down to 
making self look good or posturing in a safe way so I'm not the object of cancel culture or hate speech or just you know, shoved to the margins of life because nobody wants to live there, do they? Well, the good news we've been exploring in these past few months is a gospel of God's righteousness. Now, in the first three chapters, that's not good news because Paul says the righteousness of God is revealed in his wrath against all ungodliness. And then, remember, he walks through that series of of points and makes the argument where all are unrighteous. There's not one who measures up to the standard of God's righteousness. But Paul says in chapter three, we've all fallen short of the glory of God. And so God's righteousness is revealed in the first place in his wrath against sin. But then we, we marked a really remarkable turn in Uh, the end of chapter three and moving into chapter four and now we're all the way into chapter five where there is also a revealing of God's righteousness but it is uh, through the righteousness which is by faith, a righteousness that he is willing to credit to the account of sinners like you and me. And he's not just adding a little contribution. No, he's going to clean the account of all of the sin debt and all of the guilt and all of the corruption that really does reside within us. And he replaces it with the perfect righteousness of Jesus. This is why we call it the good news. Because the righteousness that is necessary to enter the presence of God and enjoy eternal life with him forever, a righteousness which you and I could never earn or purchase or achieve on our own God gives he just gives it away so this work that God is doing to bring you fully up to speed go to to Romans 5 with me please and if you are newer to the Christian Bible Romans is a letter that the Apostle Paul wrote to the saints who lived at Rome in the first century it's a New Testament book um, and if you're using, actually we have two different copies of Pew Bibles, and I continue to, to fail to get the page number out of the second edition, but I do know that Romans 5, at least in one edition of the, of the, um, the, the Pew Bible, as we sometimes refer it, that's available to you in the seat rack in front of you, is on page 942. And three weeks ago, when we were last in Romans, we came to chapter 5, and just to summarize real quickly, Paul's Big points in the early portion. We have peace with God through Jesus Christ. That's the key phrase there, peace with God. And then he says we have access into this realm of grace, been delivered from a realm of of sin and destruction and death. And we'll come back to that today. And then finally, he says, and we even rejoice in, in hope of that future glory. And that hope actually translates into hope in the middle of present suffering because God has a, a purpose for that suffering to create an endurance and then character. And that ultimately leads to greater hope. So there's this remarkable purpose in all of it. Now, I'd like to read verses 12 through 21 and ask you to follow along uh, because we're gonna resume Paul's letter here and come to the end of this chapter. So Romans 5, verse 12, you follow along now as I read. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death came through sin, and so death spread to all men, because all sinned, for sin indeed was in the world before the law was given, but sin is not counted where there is no law, yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one who was to come. 
But the free gift is not like the trespass. For if many died through one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. And the free gift is not like the result of that one man's sin, for the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation, but the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. If, because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. Now the law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more, so that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray together. Father, as we come again to your word with every hope and expectation that you will speak to us, we recognize our full dependence upon your spirit. Thank you that he has been sent into this world and into the very hearts and lives of believers. And part of his, part of his divine role is to illuminate our minds that we may understand this truth to awaken our souls that we may live for you, to convict us of our sin that we may repent of it, and to make us fully uh, alert and alive in Christ that we may live for your glory. So dear Holy Spirit, would you please come and do all your holy work in us for Christ's sake, for the glory of God our Father, for the joy of of your dear people and for the salvation of those who even at this moment are not yet included in the household of faith. Do all of this, we pray, in Jesus' name, amen. There are two different reigns that are established here for us in Romans 5. And as you were following along in that reading, uh, you may have begun to think in terms of the reign of sin. The reign of sin is described in, in several different categories, and you may have even picked up on the fact that Paul does two things in describing the reign of sin and then the reign of grace, or specifically the work of Christ, and there are some comparisons and some contrasts. And you may have picked up on the phrases even where he says it is like this or it's not like this. It is as this was or not as this is. And when you look at the reign of sin, there are a sequence of events that come into place, and you would note with me, as you can see from the screen, there's first of all this corrupting entrance of sin. Many people today keep asking the question, and I think rightly so, where does this evil come from? Now, we're often faced with that when a great, tragic, uh, a great tragedy unfolds. The mass shootings would be the easiest example to go to, and people want to know, how does this keep happening? And I've shared with you before some of the frustrations that we have culturally is that we're only willing to deal with that on the surface level for the most part. 
as if somehow tighter legislation or restrictions at the gun purchasing or gun accessing point would actually uh, minimize these things. But what nobody really seems to be able to do is to get to the heart of the issue, which is the heart of the perpetrator. There's something going on inside that is not contingent upon the weapon one holds in a hand. It's a heart issue. And that's where Paul says very plainly, sin came into the world, verse 15, through one man. Who is that one man? He'll name him eventually. It's Adam. And death entered the world through sin. And so death spread to all men or all people because all sin. Now let's pause there and make sure we get a little piece of of biblical truth in place. There are several different views on how this particular passage itself and the larger theological concept can be understood. If you go way back to the fourth and fifth centuries, there was a monk named Pelagius who had the idea that and taught people that they were actually capable of avoiding sin and choosing to live righteous lives even apart from God's grace. And he actually rejected the idea that there is original sin, that would be the specific term, but that there's actually a sin nature passed from one generation to another, starting with Adam, and he was teaching, and eventually labeled a heretic, um, that people were not inherently sinful that they really were able to live holy lives in accordance with God's will and law and ultimately earn their salvation by good works. And unfortunately, one of the things that that does on a practical level uh, is to not only reject the, the kind of sinful corruption in nature that Paul is speaking of here, but it actually reduces the life of Christ to simply an example to follow. You don't need Jesus to live perfectly for you. You don't need Jesus to die a substitute death for you if the potential is for you to live righteously enough where God would say, you did it. You achieved perfect righteousness. Enter into eternal life with me. Now, I know for many of you, you would say, that's crazy talk. Yes, it is, but there are many different forms that Pelagianism takes even to this day. And there are many people living around us right here in this valley who actually think that they work hard enough at it, if they're faithful enough, sacrificial enough, committed enough, they can be righteous enough. It's just a little variation uh, of that 4th and 5th century monk who lived so long ago. It's a deadly error to make, not just because it, it takes you off track theologically, but if you buy into that, it will actually lead to your destruction because you cannot achieve that kind of righteousness. Now, there have been others in the course of history who rightly interpret this particular passage and see that what Paul is saying is that all sinned with Adam. And, and to give you a, a few little terms here, categories to think under, we sometimes use the word representative for Adam or federal head, that's another one that came up in, in classes uh, through the years, but God appointed Adam as, as the representative of the entire race. And because of his choice, every person uh, is now born with a sin nature, and it's corrupted thoroughly. Uh, you will even hear the term total depravity. That doesn't mean we're as bad as we possibly could be. It just means that in our total person, from your mind uh, down through your will and your heart, uh, sin has touched every part of you. 
and we're in need of, of rescue. And we don't self-rescue. The, the gospel is not a, a pull yourselves up by your, boots, your own bootstrap gospel. We are in desperate need and that's exactly what Paul is touching on. So sin entered the world, death came through sin and so death spread to all people because all have sinned. Then look at verse 19. Many were made sinners. Just a brief note there, the verb were made does not mean that sinless people were compelled to become sinners, but rather, as this author uh, is, is noting, that Adam's sin constituted them as sinners. We were born as members of a race that was already separated from God. It's a devastating corruption that Paul is touching on. Now, it's a, it's a corruption that has also very disastrous consequences, and that's where we come to the second part. And this phrase, or this idea, appears multiple times. We see it, first of all, here in those early verses. Death came into the world through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sin. But even go back to verse 14. Death reigned from Adam to Moses. Verse 15, many died through one man's trespass. Verse 17, death reigned through that one man. And death is portrayed as a sovereign ruler who prior to the Mosaic law even imposed his will through the sin and imposed guilt on all who were living. What a tyrant. I don't know if or when you have read Genesis 5. Uh, it's one of those passages that there doesn't seem to be a ton in it that feels really devotional. There's some curiosities there, uh, not the least of which is that there are eight generations from Adam to Lamech who are listed, and the youngest guy in that crew lived to be 777 years old, and the oldest, Methuselah, lived to be 969 years. And I know many people kind of like, you know, laugh into their hand like, oh yeah, that, that's gotta be myth. No. We believe the word of God. They were uh, living much longer in those days for various reasons. We could talk about that later, but that's not in our purview now. But as you read that list of eight generations, the last line with reference to each of those eight individuals from Adam to Lamech is this, and he died. And you put that little phrase and the repetition of it, and he died, and he died, and he died. And he died. Eight times that phrase occurs and even, and even positioned against those extraordinary ages. 969 years. Which who here wants to live that long? Not in this world. No, thank you. But as long as their lives were, they eventually succumbed to death. You know why? Because death reigned. Death had the final say over every person's life then and it will even now. Not one of us is exempt. Many of us have walked that valley with family members and friends, haven't we? Some of you are young enough where you may, not, where you may say, I haven't actually lost someone close to me at this point. We're thankful for that, but dear friend, it's coming. Death reigned. And the repetition of that phrase in Genesis 5 reminds us of the dreadful consequences of sin. Sin entered the world and death entered the world and it spread to all without exemption because all sinned. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 15 verse 56, the sting of death is what? Say it with me. Sin. 
That's what makes funerals so maddening. We go, and, and as a human race, we are culpable in this. We've done this to ourselves, if you will. That's what Paul is meaning. The sting of death is sin. Now, thankfully, that's not the end of the story, is it? But it is the grim reality. And it's part of what Paul is, is opening up for us, that there is this horrific reign of sin that brings death into our world. But then he speaks, as you can see, the third point there would be a dreadful judgment of condemnation, all from the result of one man and one act of, of sin and transgression. The judgment following one trespass, Paul says in verse 16, brought condemnation. And then he writes in verse 18 that it is a condemnation for all. And this terminology is not new to us. We've been looking at this over a series of weeks now. There are legal terms being employed here. And this condemnation refers to a legal decision of guilty in a criminal case. And, and it results in a punishment that cannot be avoided. So just like back in chapter 3, verse 19, where Paul brought all of us to the place of accountability and condemnation before God, so he's reminding us not only that all are subject to this condemnation, but here's how it happened. We have Adam to thank for this. Now, lest we think that somehow we would have made a different choice than Adam, we should remind ourselves that he was a perfect man living in perfect relationship with God in a perfect world at that particular point, and yet he succumbed to the temptation. And the Bible even distinguishes that Eve was deceived. Adam walked right into it knowing. Don't, don't think that you're more righteous than Adam. That somehow if you had been the representative of the human race, you'd have done it differently. You think more highly of yourself than you ought to think. It reminds us of the power of sin, the power of temptation. I love the words of of the commentator Robert Mounts. No matter how devastating the sin of the first Adam, the redemptive work of the second man Paul speaks of in this passage reverses the consequences of that sin and restores people to the favor of God. Only by grasping the seriousness of the first is one able to appreciate the remarkable magnanimity of the second. And so that's where we wanna go quickly to the reign of grace. Now again, Paul is establishing some contrasts in verses 15, 16, and 17. He says, the free gift is not like the trespass. Many died through one man's trespass, but one man's grace abounds for many. Then verse 16, look at that briefly. The free gift is not like the result of that one man's sin. The judgment brought condemnation. We just looked at that. But the free gift brought justification. Then verse 16, because of one man's trespass, death reigned. But through the one man, Jesus Christ, he's actually going to say that those who believe in him will reign. So just keep some of these contrasts in, in your heart as we move through this passage because this is remarkable to think of the transition from being people who were not just under the reign of sin, but absolutely dominated by it, enslaved to it, no hope of breaking out of it, and then Jesus comes and not only rescues us and transfers us to his kingdom, and not just to make us his own slaves and servants, which we are, but actually position us so that we, as Paul writes here, we ourselves reign with him. Co-regents, if you will. That's the result of all this. How remarkable. Now, 
there are some comparisons as well, and we'll get to those in verses 18 and following, that Christ's act of, act of righteousness had an effect uh, just widespread as Adam's did, and Christ's obedience will accomplish something for us and position us to receive something that, again, we could have never received on our own. And all of this works together, as another author writes, to be an assurance of our complete salvation. But let's look at this reign of grace. I think the first thing that I wanna draw your attention to is an abounding gift of righteousness. Go back to verse 15. The free gift is not like the trespass, for if many died through one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God and the free gift of the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. Abounding is a concept that's gonna appear through this passage, and this gives us heart. It has reference to a work of God that really would be in excess, excess of, of the quantity of sin, in excess of what you could surmise you might need What does this gift abound in? Well, look at verse 16. The free gift following many trespasses brought justification. And that stands in in contrast to condemnation. That's the thing we're all hoping for. And it's more than just the Lord saying, you know, the the sentence is acquitted. You, You can walk out of God's court a free person, as we've looked at in recent weeks. No, there's actually a declaration that you have met every requirement of the law in Christ. See, but I'm not perfect in that way. He knows that. That's why he not only removes the guilt of your sin and mine, but he declares you to be righteous. That's what justification is all about. Another author writes, the one sin was the direct cause of the judgment. It led to disaster. The many trespasses were not the direct cause of the blessing, but simply the occasion that called forth the divine mercy. Sometimes we struggle at that level of thinking that God might be reluctant to step in and save and rescue because our sin is so great. But that, that, that very condition of being uh, submerged in your sin and utterly bound by it is what evokes this great response of compassion and mercy. Aren't you thankful that sin is not the last word, but that this gift that Paul is writing of here actually has power to change your condition? So in this case, the consequences of one man's actions are, in fact, glorious. They lead to a reign in life. Now, there's a second uh, truth in, in verse 17. There's also an abounding measure of grace Paul refers in verse 17 to the abundance of grace. Then in verse 20, he says the law came in to increase the trespass, but then God did something in abundance. Grace abounded all the more. Now let's pause on this for just a moment and look at verse 20 more closely with me, if you will. The law came in to increase the trespass. What, what is that about? Well, remember he had said that despite there being no formal law, no Mosaic law, uh, that death reigned from Adam to Moses. And, and Paul is not saying that, you know, it wasn't even possible to sin in those days because there was no law. 
No, he's just simply saying there was no Mosaic law that cataloged all of these prescriptions and prohibitions from God whereby we could judge our lives and evaluate are we obedient or disobedient? Are we law keepers or law breakers? Oh, people were still law breakers. Again, that's part of the reason that Genesis 5 reads the way it does. He died, he died, he died, he died. But in verse 20, when Paul says the law came in to increase, what he's making reference to is that when the law actually was set down and people began to evaluate their lives according, just start with the Ten Commandments saying, you know, these first four have to do with loving God with all your heart, and you suddenly realize what's entailed in loving God with all that you are, you realize what? I'm not as good a person as I thought I was. And then you look at the, the last six of that, which really have to do with loving others, because Jesus summarized the law with those two great commands, right? Love God, love others. But you see the specifics of what loving others looks like, including not bearing false witness, and you go, ooh, I'm in worse shape than I might have thought I was. So that's what Paul's getting at. So sin increased in that way. It's not like it actually provoked us to be greater sinners than we already were. It just kind of like shines the light on it. We've renovated a bathroom in our house recently, and one of the things that we did was add two more lights in the bathroom. It was a basement bathroom, you know, like a, something that, that I'm sure in round one before we were homeowners was added, and it was kind of a dimly lit place because there's no window uh, in any part of that bathroom, and, you know, it's like many of our basements here. Other side, there's some, you know, windows that would not even meet code by present building things, you know, so there's, there's not much natural light that comes in there, and I'm one of those people that feels like I just can't get enough light, and so I hired a friend to come over, and he rewired it, and uh, now we have three lights in there. And, and whereas we had one light with one switch, we now have three lights with two different switches. And I've had great joy even in these last several days just walking in there and flipping on the lights and going, yeah, <laughs> now I can see. The problem is when you put more light in a place, now you can actually see some of the stuff like other little dings and nicks on the walls and trim and all that. I'm like, oh, that, that's never been painted. Who knew? And there's a dirty spot in the corner that, you know, we would have just thought was clean. All of that extra light causes you to see the flaws that were there. And that's exactly what the law did. Like God brought his million candle power flashlight into the room and said, I'm actually gonna show you how sinful you really are. Well, the more sinful you see yourself as being, the more you realize, I need grace. I'd like to think that I'm a better person than I am, but God's just not letting me get away with that false thinking. But look at what he says. There's an abounding measure of grace where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. It's a long Greek term that Paul wrote into the text. It's actually much longer than our English word. I won't even attempt to pronounce it. But we could translate it in a very literal and pedantic way. It's over, over and above grace. And that's why sometimes we even use the word super abounded. Sin was bad. Multiplied, uh, when when God's, the light of his law, he illuminated it for what it was, we look and we say there's no hope. And then here comes God's grace with super hope, super abundant portions. 
You know, I've heard people criticize the words of that uh, song, one of the songs we sang this morning of Chris Tomlin's addition to John Newton's famous Amazing Grace, that particular line, like a flood your mercy reigns. And I've, I've heard some people be fairly critical of that. And I, there was a time where I too might have said, that's eh, kind of a poor poetical metaphor until my basement, our basement in South Carolina flooded. And I think those who criticize that metaphor have probably never experienced the rain, R-E-I-G-N, of floodwaters. They are absolutely sovereign. They go where they want, when they want, to the extent they want. Our South Carolina home had a walkout basement and we had lived there a number of years and then the remnants of a hurricane passed through the upstate. We we're three hours from the coast, so that was, I wouldn't say, a, it was kind of a rare occurrence. Uh, got certainly lots more rain there than we get out here. But in one particular 24-hour period, seven inches of rain fell. And it was just hard, and I still remember that sick feeling. I think it was a Sunday afternoon. And in those days, our, our church actually had an evening service, so Sunday afternoons were, I'd eat a quick lunch, I'd get back you know, to my office and finish up you know, sermon prep for sermon number two. And, and I remember going down to the basement and setting foot on the floor, and it was only a couple of inches of water, but it was floating the carpet squares, and it was just running everywhere, and that was one of those overwhelming moments. That flood rained in our basement, and I, I learned something about hydrostatic pressure. Now, that's not an actual picture of our basement, but it's similar. I mean, Kristen would remember this, too. And that doesn't look like a lot of water, but when water's where it doesn't belong, I mean, it is life-altering. And this is a fascinating thing to me. Hydrostatic pressure describes the outward and downward pressure caused by standing water pushing against any object or surface that blocks it. The pull of gravity against standing water is relentless, causing the water to push and push hard against anything that restricts its flow. And in our case, the water was actually coming through just one tiny little uh, area where the concrete slab met the wall and over time a little hole had opened up and I remember finally discovering that and I could not, I had a big shop vac, I could not vacuum the water out of that hole as fast as it was coming in. Because all of that rain that was you know, percolating down through the soil and the soil was saturated and then all that pressure had built against the front wall of our house and, and it was determined to go somewhere and, it, and in its sovereignty decided we're entering the house. I want you to picture God's love as it's already been described to us in verses one through 11. You have to go back to our study from three Sundays ago. And remember how Paul said that love has been poured out in abundance through the Holy Spirit by the death of Jesus Christ. As I was thinking through the, the abundance of God's grace and thinking back to the flood that we experienced, it, it began to occur to me that perhaps that would actually be a good illustration because the force of God's love, like gravity, is relentlessly, uh, is, is relentlessly pushing his grace into and over those places that we might say there's just no hope. His love like gravity and his grace like the water 
refuses to be stopped. And if we were using Paul's Greek terms for grace, which is that little word charis, sometimes parents name their children charis. It's, it's just grace. Rather than, high, rather than talking about hydrostatic pressure, we should be talking about charis-static pressure because that's what Paul's getting at. I think that's what was in the Apostle John's heart. We read that portion of John 1 earlier as he looked back many years after living with Jesus and hearing his teaching and coming under the power of his transformational grace. How does a son of thunder become the apostle of love? Well, the pressure of God's love and grace overcoming his superabundant or, or his abundant sin in that superabounding way is the, is the cause of it. And so John simply writes, from his fullness, we've all received just grace upon grace. Years ago, someone shared the text of a hymn that I, I don't ever recall singing it. Uh, it's a beautiful hymn that Charles Wesley has written, but there really is not a good singable tune. I actually went searching for it this week, and then knowing that Andrew wouldn't be here, I thought, we, we certainly can't learn uh, a new hymn this week, um, and especially if it's got a tune that is as challenging as the only one that I found. But in this hymn, let me just put it up there, Wesley writes these beautiful lines, Oh, Jesus, full of pardoning grace, more full of grace, than I of sin. Do you feel like you are full of sin today? Hopeless? There's more grace in God than there is sin in you. You say, that's hard for me to believe. You don't know how big my ego is, how large and out of control my pride is. There's more grace in God than pride in you. You say, Danny, I have so fed my mind and heart or on pornographic images through the years that I will never, I don't think I'll ever be free from this sin. This text is saying there's more grace in God than there is pornography in you. And this flood of grace is powerful enough to wash your mind clean. Does bitterness eat away at your soul? It may be because of past wrongs you've suffered the sin of someone else positioned you to respond sinfully, but you say, I, I will never shake this. There is more grace in God than bitterness in you. Or maybe because of the wrongs you've done in the past, there are now guilty fears that haunt your soul, fears that you will be discovered. And you work really hard to protect your reputation, and you're exhausted by it. There is more grace in God than there is past sin and present fear in you. It's a super abounding grace. Listen to the gospel message of Christ. Through the death of Christ, I'm summarizing the first 11 verses, the weight of God's love begins to press down on your life and your situation and draws out of these vast reserves these floodwaters of grace, and he relentlessly comes after you and says, turn to me, come to me. And that leads us in the last place to a ruling dominion of grace. This is where the big transfer comes. Several key words as, as we return to the text. 
Paul concludes verse 21, so that, there's the purpose uh, statement, this is the purpose of the superabounding grace, you could even translate that in order that, as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. It's grace that reigns, it's not your works that reign. It's grace that reigns, it's not your zeal that reigns and opens the door to eternal life. It's the grace of God in Jesus Christ. As sin reigned, grace also might reign. And so here Paul is saying, you know, sin once wore a royal crown, if you will, and it exercised its dominion. And that in, in that dominion, all of us were condemned. All of us were found guilty and deserving of death. But a, a new sovereign wears the royal crown, and it is the grace of God. And when that grace begins to exercise dominion through the righteousness of God in Christ, it leads inevitably and unfailingly to eternal life. Do you struggle with assurance of salvation? Quit looking at your past performance. Quit looking at your present commitment. Set your heart on the grace of God and the finished work of Jesus. That's where your hope is secured, period. And as we're gonna see, because this is a gateway to chapter six, uh, the, one of the very next things that Paul is gonna write, uh, like this hypothetical question that surfaces, well, should we continue in sin that grace would continue to abound? And he says, God forbid. So this also becomes great motivation for holy living, for obedience to the law. So he's taken the pressure off of you in one sense, invited you into this new realm of, of life, put you under the reign of grace, and so now when he gives you the command, you respond in gratitude, in faith, in hope, saying, I will. I will love you with all my heart. I will do my best to love other people. But it's not about the performance mill tread so you can make God happy and get bonus points and, and somehow access heaven. Do you see how he just flips that script totally upside down? What a gospel. So we come full circle. Do your reusable grocery bags actually make you better than anyone else? Give up your virtue signaling. And I'm not just talking in the realm of pandemics and politics. I'm talking in the eternal perspective. Because God's not impressed with your virtue signaling or mine. The only virtue he is impressed with is the perfect virtue of Jesus Christ but he invites all who will to come, to believe, and by faith in Jesus, to enter this realm of peace, to enjoy this reign of grace, to live with a real hope of eternal life. Let's pray together. Oh Lord in heaven, forgive us. Forgive us for our pride, for our self-righteousness, Long before the term became popular in the present day and age, the unregenerate heart of every one of us worked so desperately to signal our virtue both to heaven and to fellow man. We have no virtue apart from Jesus. And all we bring to you is the liability of our sin, the guilt, the corruption, we know that we deserve death. How thankful we are that you have taken our death upon yourself at the cross, Lord Jesus. You took all of our guilt, made it your own. And how thankful we are that you have also gifted us a perfect righteousness. 
Would you cause the great power and reality of this gospel truth to settle on every heart? Would you change us by it, grow us through it, motivate us because of it, and spread this good news that people from every tribe and tongue and family and nation may know this reign of grace and may worship the one true king. As your heads are bowed and your eyes are closed, I want you to continue in a spirit of prayer for just a moment. But I do want to ask a very simple question. I'm asking heads to remain bowed, eyes closed, so that no one will be embarrassed by this. But friend, if you are here today and you have never called upon God for the forgiveness of your sins and the gift of eternal life, but you're saying at this moment, I need to. I'm so weary from my virtue signaling and hoping that God would see some good in me that I could maybe have eternal life, but I, I recognize I can't do that. I need, I need Jesus. Would you acknowledge that just by lifting your hand? I will not call you out, but I would like to pray for you. And maybe we can speak briefly after the service this morning. You say, Danny, would you pray for me? I'll extend a second opportunity. If you say, I, I'm just not sure. I have a lot of questions. Many things that are attractive about this teaching, but I'd like to talk further. Then it would be a great privilege to meet with you. And there are others here. Some of you came with a friend or family member, and I, I know that they would love to just open the Bible right back up to this very spot and talk in more detail. But if you say, I, I would like to meet with somebody, would you just raise your hand? And then we'll, I'll make a point to get with you. So Father, there's a great work underway in each of our hearts. Would you continue that and do that for Christ's sake? Do that for our joy. Do it because you are God and we have no hope apart from you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.